Hello and welcome to episode 10, the anniversary special of the HD Lockdown Pod. Um, we are back with uh, Mr. Lawton. Hello, Mr. Lawton. Hello there. How are things with you? Has uh, the easing of lockdown made your life any more uh, easier, I suppose? Um, yeah, I suppose so. It's uh, been quite nice. I've been doing the usual, enjoying the sunshine. Well, by enjoying it, I mean staying out of the way of it so I don't burn. I've been uh, reading some books, watching some films, watching all the football now that it's back, you know, it's starting to consume my life again. And um, I've moved the HD lockdown quiz to Thursday nights at 8pm. So if you're around for the next three weeks on a Thursday night without anything to do, come along on Thursdays at 8pm. Um, apart from that, not really a lot going on. Started a different podcast, you'll be sad to know. Everybody go and have a listen to it on Spotify or Google Podcasts or whatever provider you like. The Spit Valve Podcast. It's all about brass bandings. I'm sure there are loads of you out there that really want to listen to that. At first, I'm just surprised that there are any other podcasts available. Uh, I thought we were the only one. And I thought we were the only one for you, Mr. Lawton. But it seems, it seems you've been... Uh, Playing away somewhat in recent weeks, Mr. Patterson. Mr. Patterson, how how are things with you? Are you uh, excited about the return to face to face teaching? I suppose. Uh, excited's a word that you could use, not one I would necessarily use. Um, but yeah, no, I I guess I am. I mean, the the walls of the house are starting to close in a little bit again, um, and I'm just struggling through the heat. My Unlike Mr. DeSalvo with his Mediterranean roots, my uh, my Scottish roots are not coping particularly well with the last few days. Yeah, sweating, literally sweating iron brew through your pores. <laughs> I'm really interested in the fact that Sully Hall's been experiencing earthquakes. Why are the walls falling in? Oh, you know what I mean. No earthquakes since my uh, my 90-second challenge. <laughs> Usually it's when it's you, you rumbling down the street on that scooter. And we'll get to see. It's uh, an outing next week. So, uh, guys, keep an eye out for Mr. Pattinson uh, rumbling down Jennings Road on his um, on his electric scooter. Uh, Mr. DeSalvo, welcome. Hi, everyone. Yeah, I just uh, want to give the announcement that I finally turned the heating off. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I've just been quite busy with... Um, um, again, coordinating, you know, Carpenter and other people for the house renovation works. And, um, yeah, just kept busy with um, writing reports and, uh, yeah, uh, organising my lessons. Really nothing too exciting. Um, a bit of gym, but, yeah, that's that. Well, the, the weather has clearly taken a turn. Mr. DeSalvo is recording uh, his uh, podcast today outside, uh, which is yes. quite, an, quite an incredible thing to see. Um, right, so on today's uh, HD lockdown pod, we have some exciting things lined up for you. Uh, Mysterious Country uh, makes its long-awaited return. I haven't played the game for three weeks, and um, I've had with, have withdrawal symptoms, I think. Um, Humanities at the movies. This time, we're taking uh, a stop off at Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Uh, most excellent indeed. Um, and then, of course, Geography Corner. Uh, this week, we're going to pick up some geography news, looking at the Burning Arctic Circle. I can't even begin to pronounce something to do with an earthquake, Mr. Lawton. It's Oaxaca. Wa Oaxaca earthquake and uh, uh, water bills in the USA. And then finally, language liaison, uh, we're looking at careers in languages. So as Mr. Lawton said, the HD lockdown quiz, Thursday, 8 p.m., the new slot. 
um, be there uh, every Thursday for as long as uh, we decide to keep it running. Um, okay, I think that brings us to the end of part one. We'll be back in just a few moments with part two. Okay, welcome back to part two. And it is, of course, our favourite time of the week. It is Mysterious Country. I'm using random data, using various data. All random facts, don't judge me. You can guess it when it's your time. I, I, I said, ooh, mysterious country. No, I can't stop until you are right. Right then, everybody, welcome back to Mysterious Country. Uh, same rules as always, so our contestants are going to have seven clues about three mysterious countries, and at the end of each clue, that's kind of a round, and they get to chime in with their guess of the country. So let's begin with country number one. This country was a place where the 365-day and 12-month calendar was invented. Des Patterson. DeSalvo. Greece. Incorrect. Patterson. Germany. Incorrect. Ike. Russia. Incorrect. Two. Ethically, this country can be considered homogeneous because 99% of its people are from the same ethnic racial background. Yes. DeSalvo. China. Incorrect. Ike. Egypt. Eccleston wins the point. Correct. Well done, Eccleston, oh. with Egypt there. Um, so the next clue was going to be one of the most famous people in the country actually comes from Greece, which was Cleopatra. Turned to seven uh, UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Um, it's also criticised by Amnesty International for uh, its political freedoms and their political rights of speech. If you have over 5,000 followers on any social media account in Egypt, uh, the government will monitor your account closely. It is in their laws, and um, it's home of two of the most successful football teams on the continent, which are Al Ali, who have won their, their their continental trophy eight times, and Zemalek, who have won it like five times. Um, anyway, so let's move on to country number two. This country is the largest country in the continent. When you take away the country in the continent, that spans over two continents. Patterson. Patterson. China. Incorrect. That clue did narrow it down to two continents, so well done for sticking into one of them. That was good. Clue number two. The national drink is Holilka, which is burning water. Des. Desalva. Kazakhstan. Incorrect. Ike. Tajikistan. Axum incorrect. Pat. Patterson. Oh, Turkey. I don't know. Incorrect. It's home to the world's deepest train station at 105 metres. The deepest train station? Oh, sorry. Ukraine. Correct. Well done, DeSalvo. So, Eccleston won, DeSalvo won, Patterson nil. The other clues are going to be it's home to many ghost towns. The most famous one probably Pritiat, where I wouldn't have told you about because of the Chernobyl disaster. It's where the gas lamp was invented. Its capital features in Mogoski's Pictures at an Exhibition with the Great Gate of Kiev, which is a fabulous piece. 
and it was granted independence in 1991, which would have narrowed it down significantly, probably to either Belarus or Ukraine. Country number three. This country has many Osama bin Laden-themed bars. Ike. The United States of America. Incorrect. Two. TripAdvisor rated this country as having the world's best beach. Ike. Australia. I think we've had Australia before, but Australia. Eichelstrom. No, incorrect. Australia is home to the most beaches on the planet. But, uh, no. Um, right. The highest mountain in this country was not discovered until the 1950s and was only ascended in 1965, 12 years after Everest. Where's it been? Who's... who's... <laughs> Des. I, think I think it's a significant clue. Desalva. Uh, India. Incorrect. Pat. Patterson. It's got to be like... In Philippines. Incorrect. I like your thinking, though. It's for right sort of thing. Yeah, we've got some uh, Bin Laden bars. We've got the nicest mm. beach in the world, and we've got a yeah. mountain that wasn't found. The highest mountain wasn't found until 1950. I've got a feeling this is going to be like a country that has been quite. You would have thought maybe closed off for a long time, possibly like inaccessible. People didn't, you know, very from um, the Western world. I, I don't know. It might have been Patterson thinking. Just we're going for the Philippines. No idea. No idea. Um. So, uh, this country borders every other country on the continent apart from two. Wow. Ike? Death. Eichelstam. Is it Russia? Incorrect. I would have said continents. Death. Desalva? Uh, Burma. Oh, incorrect. Pat. Patterson. Oh, this is uh, the... Bangladesh. Incorrect. I think it borders two countries of maybe three. Um, anyway, uh, this country's capital took 41 months to build. I have a stab at Chile. Incorrect. Des. Desalvo. Papua New Guinea, however you say it. <laughs> no, and... Um, just it's a, an island. It, 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 it's an island, so it can't border... <laughs> Um, I'd forgotten momentarily about that detail. <laughs> um, it's the world's largest exporter of coffee for 150 years, no less. Des. Desalvo. Colombia. Incorrect. I mean, you'd think it has to be Central American, South American, you'd think with coffee, but it's one of them things where maybe it isn't. I mean, Ike, Nicaragua. I it can't be Nicaragua. What am I doing? It can't be Nicaragua. Oh, Pat. Patterson. Brazil. Patterson gets the point. So oh. we've got a tied game here. So, yeah, it was very much Brazil. Uh, Osama bin Laden bars for some reason had the themes there. World's best rated beach in Rio de Janeiro. I thought that would give it away uh, mm. quite a bit. Borders every other country on the continent bar too. I think it's Chile and Ecuador. Mm -hmm. 
it doesn't border, it touches every other country on the continent, which is fantastic because it's huge, it's colossal in size. Its highest mountain uh, was discovered on the border between Venezuela and Brazil, so it was really inaccessible because of the Amazon rainforest and because it's pretty much sheer vertical cliffs. So people didn't ascend it for another 12 years until they figured out how to do it. Brasilia was then made the capital after Sao Paulo and Rio have both had the capital before and they built it in the middle of the rainforest. They had to build it from scratch and they built it rather quickly so they could move in. The last uh, question was going to be slums here are called favelas, which would have given it away really quickly and it would have been a matter of speed. So my question is actually based around an estimate. Okay, and you can dispute this if you want, but I looked at a few websites and they were within point one of each other with the estimates. So I'm going to think that this is pretty close in general consensus. So how many slaves were sent to Brazil during the Atlantic slave trade? Because famously everybody thinks of the United States of America, but can I say it dwarfs, it absolutely makes them, that look so small in comparison. How many yeah, because in, in Brazil, they treat you done particularly bad, didn't they? And the life yeah. expectancy was like a yeah. couple of years or something. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like the kind of thinking behind slavery in America is that you treat them with respect, you can get them to breed, they can breed you new slaves that you can then work, where yeah. in Brazil it was considered you just work them to death and get another one in. It was like, it's almost like getting a phone and just battering it around. It's absolutely crazy. It's completely unsustainable. And, and it's scarily horrible. <laughs> And slavery was um, legal in Brazil longer than um, than it was in the United States and, and, and the UK as well. I think it was one of the last countries uh, in the world to simply, uh, abolish abolish slavery. Um, I'll go for fifteen million. Fifteen million. Twenty-two million. Twenty-two million. See, I think it's something like forty million. 40 million is that what you're going with? Yeah. Yeah, I, there was only actually around uh, half a million slaves transferred to, to America. Lots went to the West Indies, but actually to the United States of America, there was only around half a million. Uh, 4.9 million estimated slaves went to Brazil. So that means Mr. Eccleston wins being the closest within wow. around 11 million, uh, a large amount. So... Um, Closest one. Congratulations, Mr. Arkansas, on winning this week's Mysterious Country. Thank you, thank you very much. It's, it's been a great pleasure. I mean, it's been three weeks since we last met and played. Um, I, for one, have been practicing daily uh, with my uh, atlas and, and my uh, book, book of knowledge. So it's good to see all that revision paying off. Okay, so uh, thank you very much, Mr. Lawton, for the, the clues again this week. That brings us to the end of another uh, riveting game of Mysterious Country. Ooh, mysterious country No, I can't stop until you are right Okay, that brings us to the end of part two. We'll return in just a few seconds with part three. Welcome back to part three. And it is the second uh, run of our, of our new exciting feature. Uh, the Humanities Department are off to the movies. Humanities at the movies I'm wondering what's going on I'm looking up a knowledge Wondering if it's factually correct It's time for our conversation
So this week uh, we've taken a trip back in time in more ways than one. The uh, movie itself, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Now, a motion picture so grand, so magnificent, and so vast, it spans 7,000 years. No way! Yes way! But it starts with Bill. I'm Bill S. Preston! Who was Joan of Arc? And Ted. Noah's wife? We are in danger of flunking most heinously tomorrow. A force from the future. Can we go anywhere we want at any time? You can do anything you want. Is putting history at their fingertips. Let's reach out and touch someone. They're traveling through time. How's it going, royal ugly dudes? Put them in the Iron Maiden. Excellent! Execute them. Bogus. How's it going, dude? And they're making a big impression. Historical babes. Now they're home. Everybody get together, remember who your buddy is. To trash the 20th century. We got a live one here. Keanu Reeves, Alex Winter, Napoleon. We're from history. Billy the Kid. Oh my God. Joan of Arc. Sigmund Freud. Tell me about your mother. You a musician? Beethoven. Genghis Khan! Abraham Lincoln. Party on, dudes! Socrates. George Carlin. We're history. If you guys are really us, what number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! <gasps> Bill and Ted's... Excellent! Excellent! Excellent adventure. So, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Bill and Ted, uh, played by Alex Winter, who, you know, who have you heard, who's heard of that guy, and uh, Keanu Reeves, they're high school buddies starting a band, however, they're about to fail their history class, which means Ted would be sent to military school. But they receive help from Rufus, played by George Carlin, a traveller from a future uh, where their band is the foundation for a perfect society. With the use of Rufus's time machine, Bill and Ted travel to various points in history, returning with important figures to help them complete their final history presentation. So, um, Keanu Reeves making his big smash into, into Hollywood, and um, Alex Winter making a slightly smaller smash, I guess, into, into, into Hollywood. Um, initial impressions, folks. Uh, what did we make of this film? Um, Mr. Patterson, I'll start with you. Is this, a, is this reliving a, a childhood classic for you? Yeah, I watched this when I was probably slightly too young and probably missed quite a few of the jokes. Um, yeah, I love this movie. It's very like, if you've seen um, Wayne's World, it's got that same sort of vibe to it. The kind of radical dude. Um, yeah, I think it's brilliant. And it's bizarre that Keanu Reeves would be like, you know, he's been in The Matrix and in um, John Wick and all these like pretty serious sort of um, films, but he makes his big debut in this just ridiculous sort of farce. But yeah, he went on to be a, a kind of a, a, a bona fide um, Hollywood A-lister, um, you know, a true kind of a movie star hunk, if you want, if you will. And like a very serious, slightly depressing. Yeah. All of his movies have the same sort of slightly depressing undertone, but this is just pure ridiculousness. I mean, good fun, basically. Watch, you watch him in The Matrix and you don't think he's capable of playing kind of slightly like a, you know, a, a chilled out doofus sort of um, 
a geeky character, I guess. Um, but yeah, um, Mr. Lawton, I think mean, uh, Bill and Ted, is it a classic for you? What did you think of it, uh, watching it again after all this time? Yeah, I think I've seen the entire series. So definitely I've seen Bill and Ted's Excellent and Bogus Adventure, which I think is the sequel where death goes around with them, which is really funny too. It's proper throwaway comedy. And I think it's a sort of comedy as well that's kind of lost. It's a comedy of innocence that uh, used to be around at that time. And I, I hate to say it, the film is obviously trying to be back to the future and, and tap into that gold mine that had happened before. Cause they've literally gone back to the past. They go to the future and then they drag these characters in. Um, it's very much playing on that era of films and uh, yeah, it's lovely. And uh, the acting in it is, oh, it's so cliche of that period. It's untrue, but it's got a warm, fuzzy feeling as you watch it. it it's really nice. And uh, I think it's, uh, Ted, oh no, Bill's mum is it? Who's a uh, mum? Yeah, yeah, Bill's mum. Um, what like playing on this sort of a uh, young dad gets a young mum sort of vibe, which actually now, um, looking back from with my teacher eyes at it, I I find it very creepy to watch uh, those scenes with them. There are certain aspects of this film that clearly have dated, and it's a film from the nineteen eighties. Um, and there are certain kind of jokes they make and some of the ideas. I mean, I was actually, I had to double check uh, the rating of this film, that it's a PG. And I was surprised to see that actually, in a way, there was a few things that were quite suggestive um, and made me go, okay. And like you said, uh, Mr. Patterson, about kind of uh, um, some things maybe going over your head when you were a kid. Um, but yeah. nowadays you kind of see them now with uh, adult eyes, let's say, and you go, all right, I can see what they're up to there. Um, Mr. DeSalvo, now you weren't as fortunate as we to kind of... Uh, get a chance to watch this film in full this week but you have sampled a part of it what did you make of what you saw yeah so i um wouldn't use the word unfortunate but um yeah i didn't um um have the chance to to see the film uh, in its full so i only watched the trailer today and one scene that youtube quite kindly offers for free uh the sidewalk uh, scene which is actually when the telephone box guy appears. Uh, from what I saw, I'm kind of glad that I didn't get to watch the film in its entirety. It's the kind of humour that I actually don't laugh at because it's very obvious. But then, um, having said that, obviously I haven't watched the whole film, so I hope you guys convinced me of the opposite throughout this um, review. Um, I was quite disappointed to see Keanu Reeves in that role, actually, especially because I think I first watched him in... Um, the Matrix many years ago. Um, so I didn't think that he lowered his level of acting to, to that. <laughs> um, but by all means, uh, yeah, I don't really have, you know, a very good opinion um, because I haven't watched it completely. Um, I don't know about you guys, but is it one of those films? And, you know, Mr. DeSalvo, you have uh, never seen the film and you've got, like, you know, you've seen the trailer and so on. We've, we all watched it when we were younger and we were revisiting it. Does it make a difference? That, that kind of that slightly whimsical nostalgia. We're laughing because we laughed when we were maybe 12, 13 and, and we're, we're not necessarily seeing it as an adult because I, I watched this with my partner and she just couldn't quite get what, what it was supposed to be. She couldn't quite get the tone, didn't really appreciate it um, because she'd never seen it before and she was watching it you know, as, as an adult. I don't know if that it makes a difference. Yeah, well, I, I find myself waiting for my favourite lines. 
So like there's a bit where they go back in time to the sort of middle ages and um they're if you've not seen it, they're meant to be like two kind of rock rock and roll guys from the eighties. Like they're really into their sort of metal, heavy metal music. And uh it's like the King of England says, um, put them in the Iron Maiden, which was an old torture device. Yes. And they go, Excellent. And then he's like, execute them, and they go, bogus. <laughs> I like stood up and cheered at that bit because that was the bit I'd always remembered. My favorite bit in the whole film. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the metal, the 80s metal music is obviously you know, a massive part of the film. Um, is that the kind of music that you guys uh, look back on fondly, or is it kind of slightly quaint, almost slightly silly? Like we're laughing at it in a sense, the, the big hair and that kind of stuff? Definitely laughing at it for me. Yeah, I, I laugh at it too. And I, just to tap into what you were saying before about uh, maybe watching it as a child and revisiting it, I watched it with my father and it's very much his age of music. He was into rock, so he liked it because of the music too. And that sort of throwaway humour was very popular at the time. So he told me, guided me as to where to laugh probably in the film. And I appreciated it a lot more there. I mean, today I, I much preferred the dark satirical comedy of like of Frankie Boyle. I, uh, I would much prefer to listen to comedy like that instead, or James Acaster, something that's a lot more intricate and in-depth. But this sort of humour is something that I think I just associate with, yeah, being a little bit more childish. So, yeah, I would say it's, it's childish, but, like, deliberately childish, and childish in quite an intelligent way. Sort of the same way that, like, Mr Bean is really stupid, but you have to be so clever to be able to make that work. Uh, and some of the dialogue in this movie is just abs. When uh, Ted thinks he's dead, when Ted uh, when Ted thinks Bill's dead, and he's like most untriumphant and stuff like that. Like you have to be quite smart to come up with this ridiculous way they express themselves. Yeah, the way in which they talk, it's like this slightly pompous. I don't know. It's a, it's that style that they're almost. I guess they're kind of imitating these rock stars. They're trying to, I suppose, the way they talk on stage. Um, but it is. It's very distinct to. I mean, the way they talk with some of the words they say, is very um, unique too, almost, to Bill and Ted. You know it as soon as you hear it, don't you, the way that they speak to each other. It does um, remind me of when we're at work and we are teaching new vocabulary to students. Uh, and I always think of the one where it's, um, what do you call an area that, become, uh, that has its trees removed? Well, you've got a forested area, so what do we call it when the trees have been removed? And everybody always goes, unforested. It's kind of like using your understanding of the English language that's gone before and then slapping it together. And yeah, that, that sort of play is, um, yeah, is funny. Uh, yeah, I mean, because they, well, they are, I mean, that's the thing we've got to kind of turn to, I guess, is the fact that they're not the brightest, um, brightest uh, young fellows, are they? I mean, that's kind of the whole point is that they're a little bit, um, a little bit silly, a little bit slow, perhaps. And uh, they're not doing the best at school. Um, the, the fact that the almost their entire futures it feels like hinges on a history oral presentation is truly truly remarkable I, I don't think i've even myself would ever give history such a, a put it on such a pedestal but but there we are um are we excited for the upcoming um, proposed or sequel that's been worked on at the minute because bill and ted are back 30 years on uh, in bill and ted face the music which we we're supposed to be enjoying this summer, but I think it's been pushed back because of uh, coronavirus. Would we go to the cinema to watch a 50-year-old Keanu Reeves playing Ted and a 50-year-old Alex Winter getting his first job in 30 years? Yeah, a bit unfair, Alex Winter. I think he's a director now. Okay. So he's been keeping busy, let's say. 
Um, we've got to have a look at the history, which is why this film was chosen. Um, there are, I mean, this is all about them trying to pass their kind of history oral presentation. They've got to give a, a spoken a spoken presentation about, about history. And essentially the task is that they've got to imagine what various important historical figures would have to say about essentially their California town in the, the 19, in 1988. That's, their, that's generally what the task was, am I right? Yeah. Yeah. And so they go back in time. Uh, Rufus helps them go back in time because supposedly they become this foundation of the of the future. Their the way in which they, their their views on on life, their music, essentially becomes so very important, and therefore they've got to make sure they pass this test. They've got to give this uh, decent spoken presentation. So Rufus comes back in time, grout, takes them into the ti- into the uh, telephone box. They go off to these various different time periods, and they encounter a range of historical figures could you remind me about who because there are loads of figures and some of them come in very quickly who were the historical figures in the film so as far as i could tell the historical figures that rocked up we see napoleon um napoleon we see billy the kid we see socrates or socrates as uh, as bill and ted refer to him as we see some sort of king henry though i don't know which king henry he's supposed to be Okay, but he doesn't actually come back in the box. He just they just hang out with him for a brief moment. We see Sigmund Freud, which I just didn't I, I didn't remember that, and I could <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Um, Beethoven or Beef Oven, as he's known in the film. Um, Joan of Arc. Uh, I guess uh, there's some representation for women. Women don't come out of this film looking too great uh, generally, and that's going to going back to the, the, the sort of how it's dated, I suppose. Uh, Genghis Khan, which is another kind of curious representation, I think. Yeah, pretty questionable, all Genghis. And uh, Abraham Lincoln as well uh, appears. Um, yeah, I mean, which of these figures do we feel came out of this with any kind of historical credibility? Mr. Patterson? I think Napoleon's not bad. I think he reacts to things in a lot of ways that you would assume Napoleon might. You're playing on the stereotype of French people are a little bit quirky, a little bit mad. Uh, a little bit Napoleon was pretty bad. I, like the bit where Napoleon's bowling, as much as it's absolutely ridiculous, I, c- I can see it. Napoleon, Napoleon. What, what, is it the scene when he's in the ice cream store and he's going piggy, piggy, <laughs> something like that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because Napoleon is the first person to come back, and he comes back by mistake. They don't like, grab him properly, and they leave him with. I think it's Bill or Ted's kid brother. I can't remember who it is. I think it's. I think it's Ted's. And they say that he's got to look after him, essentially, keep an eye on him while they go off time traveling. So Napoleon has this adventure around this small Californian town. He goes and has ice cream. He goes bowling. He turns up at like a water park towards the end, which is lovely. It's named Waterloo. Of course, he meets his Waterloo. Um, And then he's going down the slides and he's having a wonderful time. But at the same time, he's like this, he's got the little man syndrome, which is the big kind of uh, Napoleon stereotype that he was kind of quick to anger, I guess, and had thought a lot of himself and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, we've got Billy the Kid in there as well. Socrates, like we said, with some kind of faux philosophy turning up with a lovely reference to Kansas dust in the wind. Uh, Mr. Lawton, I know you'd appreciate that. Anyone else? I mean, Genghis Khan, we said earlier there was a questionable representation. What do we think about how Genghis Khan is portrayed? I mean, it's verging into uh, sort of racism, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's kind of constantly that. doing like kind of kung fu and stuff. Um, despite the fact he's Mongolian. And as far as I know, uh, Mongolians have no real history of kung fu, but no, um, it's not all wrestling. They're, they're based upon yeah. grappling as being their main weapon form. So. I mean, it is quite outrageous. It's that kind of this really crude 
cultural stereotype that the idea that the Mongols received these kind of like um, pillaging hordes that swept across Asia in the 13th century. And he is, um, you know, he likes eating lots of food. Uh, he spends time with lots of women. And, and also he likes just fighting a lot, essentially. And that's what he does. I do um, like the portrayal of um, Socrates, Socrates, actually, in the film, because you're talking about somebody like we are going from what's written down. We have no idea what he was like as a real person. But you're talking about somebody at the time was a forward thinker, somebody who was accepting of seeing the world in a different way to other people. And when he comes into the future and he is going around, he's kind of like absorbing things. He seems in awe and wonder of seeing these different time periods because he goes back to uh, medieval England as well, doesn't he, with Billy the Kid. And Billy the Kid's there like showing him how to lasso and stuff. And he is he's inquisitive. And I, I would like to think that somebody who is considered even today to be quite a, a prominent thinker philosophically, that he would approach going and time travel that sort of way. I think it's really nice. By the same token, Sigmund Freud, um, I think it's really good. He's just breaking people down, as I assumed he, he, was, he was doing at the time. He just wanted to learn about the human mind. But Billy the Kid is outrageous because he is a clean-shaven, gorgeous looking cowboy who's like six foot four i mean people back then would have been like five foot four probably had a gruff beard broken teeth everywhere it would it would have been like a completely different person but um yeah yeah that, that's what i thought about the characters they're, they're essentially pencil sketches aren't they they are kind of outlines of from history where there is for some of them a slither of of something that makes sense and you know there's a bit of napoleon which you go okay perhaps you know, there's tiny bits of, maybe tiny, tiny bits of Genghis Khan. But I mean, most of it is this kind of very small kind of, yeah, penciled sketch outline. And then the film just has fun with it, I guess. And, you know, it's not that, it's not a history lesson. The film is not doing that. But at the same time, you know, it does, let's say, give value to history. And to a certain degree, like it's a bit of, a bit of fun. Like it's like going like, this is actually yeah. important. It provides us with that awe and wonder, doesn't it? I, I think Dante's peak, I could actually ask A-level geographers to go back and yeah. look at and pick out the good geography in it. And they would actually be able to come back with a decent side or so of notes saying, oh, this was referenced, that was referenced. It's kind of like a fun way of doing the spot, the good geography. It would be quite useful. But yeah, um, I, I don't think from my perspective, is it not a history? I don't think you could ever set this as a piece of work for people no. to watch and really take a lot from. One, one of the things, and this is the last thing I'll probably say on the history side of things, is that uh, like Horrible Histories, um, I'm sure you know most of you guys listening would have, would have watched some Horrible Histories sometime. They have lots of value in there for historians. I mean, yes, sometimes they're quite slight on detail and they're a little bit silly at times and emphasizing the fun stuff, but you can certainly use Horrible Histories as a basis and then build on it with you know more kind of in-depth historical knowledge. With Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, you could find yourself going quite down some dangerous roads to some, you know, some stereotypes that really are not, you know, are not fair reflections of that period or of that individual. Like the stuff to do with the Old West, it's saloons, it's bar fights, it's drinking, it's gambling. It's so, such a, such a clear sort of representation of a certain image of the West um, that really is not, not a, you know, a fair reflection at all. And if you just watch that, uh, you wouldn't be a, a, in a confident position to write an A-level history essay. I don't think. Let's go to the star rating and review. Before we get Mr. Lawton, Mr. Patson's uh, star rating, Mr. DeSalvo, you've heard a little bit about the film. You've heard a bit about how the history is represented in the film. Has it managed to persuade you to maybe watch a little bit more than just the trailer and one scene? I'd give it a go. I think it's probably one of those films I'd watch maybe on a 
plain, although maybe it's a bit um, less likely to, to happen now. Um, you know, something kind of whilst I'm doing something else, you know, so to have something easy in the background. Um, but I, I feel like I should watch it, otherwise I won't be able to, you know, join the conversation when we go out finally uh, for the end of year party, maybe. Um, um, but yeah. Mr. Lawton, give us your rating out of five, please. Your uh, your star rating. I I I don't know what's got into me. I feel like this is better than Dante's Peak for me. Um, I really found it difficult to see past the outrageously poor acting. I think this acting is good for the type of acting it is and what it's meant to be. Whereas Dante's Peak was trying to be serious. It wasn't trying to be funny at times. Yet it comes across as comedy. So I'm going to give this four out of five. Mr. Patterson? It's a strong five out of five for me. Wow. <laughs> but I will not I will not watch the sequel because I'm I'm scared of it being um it's sort of tainting this one. So I'm not I'm not I don't think Keanu Reeves can go from this to the Matrix and then back to this. Um I myself I'm gonna go a bit more cautious. I'm gonna go to a, a three star. It's it's good, I had fun. To be honest with you, I mean I haven't seen it since I was probably about twelve or thirteen years old, maybe even younger. Uh, I didn't remember it very well. I enjoyed it, and I giggled along at certain points, but I don't feel like I need to see this again, probably. Um, it was good for what it was. It was fine. Um, but um, three stars is as much as it's getting from me. So we've had four, five, and three. And Mr. DeSalvo is certainly unsure, uncertain, whether he's going to dip his toe back into the Bill and Ted uh, pool again. So, Mr. DeSalvo, what movie do you have in mind for us uh, next time out? So I think that for the next episode of Humanities at the movie, we should all watch uh, Pedro Almodovar's film called Volver. That is Volver, spelled V-O-L-V-E-R. Really, really good film. Um, yeah, and I hope you enjoy it. But I can't promise that it's going to be better than, you know, Dante Speak and uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Volver, Almodova. Hmm. I look forward to it. Um, I certainly haven't seen it before, so uh, it'll be an interesting watch, I'm sure. And that brings us to the end of another Humanities at the Movies. Humanities at the Movies I'm wondering what's going on I'm looking up on knowledge Wondering if it's factually correct, it's time for our conversation. Okay, that brings us to the end of part three. We'll return in just a few moments with part four. Welcome back to uh, part four. We are taking a, a turn to uh, Geography Corner for the first time in a little while. Uh, Mr. Lawton, what have you got for us uh, in, in geography? What's going on? Welcome back everybody to Geography Corner. This week we're taking a different uh, turn. Uh, we're going to have a look at some news in the geography world and it's been three weeks away. And the first area we're looking at is um, the Arctic burning. Well, the Arctic Circle burning, I should say. Um, because if I say the Arctic Circle, most of you would think of it as being quite cold. While recently we've had records absolutely smashed in the Arctic Circle, we've had several um, stations uh, located in that circle where they've registered 38 degrees Celsius in several places. So that's meant that we've ended up with 
Um, Several meteorological stations, weather stations, have registered 38 degrees Celsius in the Arctic Circle. Now, that goes across several places, places where you would find glaciers, where you would find ice and snow, but also areas where there's actually quite a bit of vegetation in Arctic tundra, especially in northern parts of Russia. So what satellite images have actually been able to pick up is there have been extreme wildfires up there, more wildfires than ever been registered before. Similar sort of levels to actually what we were seeing in Australia, but because they're in uninhabited parts of the world or very remote areas where there are very little people, uh, amounts of people living there and um, it's not really been reported too much and with the other things that are going on in the world with the black lives matter movement um quite rightly taking a lot of the headlines with covid19 quite rightly taking a lot of the headlines that means that it hasn't really been noted too much at all these are it's an absolute tragedy ecologically and if we think about feedback loops that we have in geography um, as these fires are occurring and these areas are warming up the reason why the fires are starting so well is contained within the tundra there is methane gas as that tundra thaws out six or seven meters of frozen soil that's been there for centuries frozen is thawing out there to this heat it's catching a fire and methane when it enters the atmosphere is 20 times stronger than co2 which then exacerbates it makes it significantly worse the actual levels of climate change we will experience or the speed at which climate change will occur. Now, due to COVID-19, quite recently, we've actually seen a drop in CO2 levels. If people have been staying indoors, we've had a lot less freight going around the planet in terms of airlines and in terms of cars, which coincidentally, the air pollution that's created by them and the impact that has upon poor people who live closer to transport networks actually makes COVID-19 worse for those poor people, uh, which nobody seems to talk about too much. But um, as well as that, our habits have changed during this time. Many of us have got used to cycling and walking, taking e-scooters everywhere, Mr. Patterson, which means that we're actually seeing um, people's habits go more sustainable. So we could actually stop these sort of Arctic fires occurring and these levels of extreme changes to our planet occurring, but already we're starting to see a rebound um, with the CO2 levels. Um, They're going up almost vertically on the scales. At the start of the year, it drops off vertically and it's almost going straight back up now, which is really frustrating. And you could say, oh, well, why? And you can feel frustrated about it. But it's because a bit like what's happening with the Black Lives Matter movement and these sorts of movements that are trying to change the status quo, where they're trying to change the big institutions, the world is set up in a way that it makes it very difficult to make this change occur. Big oil companies, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, places like that, Russia, they need to sell their oil. It's a big part of their economy. They pay people inside our governments to allow them to trade with each other. And then our governments take massive tax revenues from the selling of this oil. We've experienced cheaper petrol over the last few weeks. That isn't very good to the people who are trying to sell it, who are quite powerful and influential. So we think about global governance, the management of the world system. This all kind of feeds back together. And we've gone all the way from the Arctic burning to a point where we can see actually the sale of carbon fuels ties straight into this. And it's quite scary. And it's one of the reasons why I love geography and seeing that we're in this sort of climate change in the news 
Um, something that came up the other day was the fact that water bills in the USA have actually seemingly risen in some areas, or sorry, quite a few areas around the US, um, by 80% from 2010 to 2018. The reason why that data is two years old is because it takes a while to get the accurate data in from all the different states and process it and make sure that the scientists who come out with these findings are actually secure and what they've got is accurate. Now, as climate change uh, gets worse in terms of heating up our planet, uh, as it is doing at the moment, um, these shortages of water are going to be more and more extreme. And in the USA at the moment, you may have realized that there are now over 40 million people without jobs. They're on their equivalent of job seekers allowance on benefits, looking for jobs. These people are very much in poverty. And yet water bills are increasing by 80%. If they weren't able to afford it before, they're not going to be able to afford it now. This is a human need and necessity. And in a market like America, it's not like the UK. What they will do is just shut off the water if you can't pay the bill. And that is a scary prospect for the future. The water is going to play such a valuable um, part in our lives, obviously, biologically, but it's going to actually increase in value significantly as part of our lives. And it's something that for you guys who are listening who are younger will be a massive concern. And for me, as I get older, um, we've really got to consider that. Now I'm gonna leave the climate change element behind and go towards our tectonic um, area of geography. And I'm gonna talk about the Oaxaca earthquake that's happened just the other day. Uh, Oaxaca's spelt weirdly. It's in Mexico. Um, it's towards the uh, south west of Mexico and it's spelled O-A-X-A-C-A. So you can see why Mr. Eccleston at the start of the pod would have had trouble trying to pronounce that straight away. Now it was 6.5 on the Richter scale. It's quite significant magnitude. The Richter scale only goes up to 10 and the largest ever recorded earthquake to 9.5. It was relatively shallow um, and that's really bad. Uh, the deeper it is, the less we feel it on the surface of the earth. So, and there was 140 aftershocks as a result of this, and they're still going on. Uh, five people have passed away, unfortunately, and there's been countless that have been injured. But it happened at 10.30 local time, and some people are actually thanking the coronavirus quite backhandedly here because it meant that lots of people weren't out on the streets when the falling rubble collapsed because generally when a building does shake at this velocity um the rubble falls outwards and um, it takes a pancaking effect for the building to crush people and that didn't happen too much in this region so we saw damage to buildings bridges highways and because of mexico's uh, catholic sort of relevance um, lots of people are reporting about the church spires that have fallen down which to me is of no real significance but it's not really for oaxaca that people care about this earthquake it's the fact that 400 miles away mexico city felt the earthquake and as soon as mexico city feels an earthquake everybody starts to worry there because mexico city finds itself as part of the trans-mexican volcano belt it's not actually in a caldera it's not actually in the crater of the uh, volcanoes but it's found on a former lake uh, bed so lake uh, texcoco uh, the lake bed is uh, is now what mexico city finds itself upon and it's um, heavily saturated clay um, and saturated clay sounds like okay well it's full up that's great that's water there they can access sounds like the ideal situation well 
unfortunately, the water below Mexico City is polluted for starters, so that's not very good. But once we get seismic activity, which is associated with volcanic regions, we actually get liquefaction. So that ground virtually turns to quicksand when there's any sort of vibrations and the buildings begin to actually slump into the ground. Um, it could be devastating in this region. Mexico City is very densely populated. There's over 8.9 million people there. They've got not an adequate water supply. They literally have things that look like dumper trucks moving around the city uh, with water in them to give to people who can afford it. And then on top of this, they've now just had the realization again, oh, what if an earthquake goes off? That would be very bad for us. And at the same time, I always love this point about Mexico City, just to finish off with the news that Mexico City deals with a lot of air pollution because around it is a range of mountains which keeps all the gases kind of in there. It fills it up with a thick smog. And they've had some ingenious ways of trying to reduce this. No, not by giving out clean cars or doing anything like that. But one proposal that made it all the way to the government, like Senate or whatever they call it, their parliament, and it's actually got refused at the last moment, was to build giant fans into the mountain ranges and almost blow the air out, which to me sounds absolutely crazy. But it went through several rounds of government approval and got millions of pesos, I think it is in Mexico, of funding. Absolutely mental in my eyes. So um, those are some things that have been happening in the world recently in geography. And uh, that's it for Geography Corner today. Thank you very much, Mr. Lawton. You really would think, wouldn't you, that um, the Mexican government, any government, would, um, if they're going to spend millions of pesos on something, maybe, maybe finding a way to produce cleaner energy. But, but there we are. Um, also, yeah, this, the stuff you mentioned about water in the US, um, I remember watching something recently about is it Las Vegas is particularly one of the, the really kind of most concerned areas with the kind of the, mm. the worry about being able to essentially keep the city hydrated, let's say. That entire southwestern region of America, California and Nevada, all those places there have been going through an extreme period of drought uh, for a long time. Inside Las Vegas, they've actually completely changed the gardens in most of the residential houses. They used to have lovely little picket fences with green grassland. It's completely not native to the area at all. They're in the desert. They decided to build this city there. So almost everybody has now changed their gardens to being rocks instead. And people have gone out there, invested in pretty rocks and they've done arrangements and things like that, which sounds silly. It may not look appealing to us, but it's actually a lot better. They don't have to waste water on that. Ironically, they've still got many golf courses around Las Vegas. Um, uh, one of the solutions that they found to actually uh, protect the water in uh, that region of America is are these black balls. I don't know whether anybody's ever been to a ball pit in a wacky warehouse or anything like that, but they are black plastic balls like that, and they drop millions of them onto reservoirs, and they're called shading balls, because what they do is then they shade the water underneath, and they absorb the light as it's coming in from the sun, as if you wear black clothes on a sunny day, you get warmer than wearing white clothes because they reflect it. And that means that evaporation decreases by over 80%. So you can wow. serve the water in the reservoir magnificently. They've been used now for around five years. After around three years, they had to deal with the issue of algae growing in the water, but uh, they found a way around that, apparently. The scientists cracked that. But yeah, um, it's an area that has to conserve water all the time. Yeah, that kind of stuff is when it's that sort of um, application of scientific principles to deal with something so fundamental is quite incredible. It's uh, the need for geographers, sir, and geography skills in the world, you know. 
if you say so, sir. Uh, right, okay, it brings us to the end of uh, Geography Corner and part four. We'll be back in just a few moments with part five. Welcome back to part five, and it is uh, Language Liaison uh, this week with uh, Mr. DeSalvo. What treats do you have in store for us this week, sir? Hola. Um, well, I thought today we'd look at uh, um, careers that you can go into um, with languages. It seems like an obvious choice quite a lot of the time when you speak another language to do some of the jobs I'm going to go through. Um, but as our listeners are obviously mostly going to be um, performers, um, I think there are some really great opportunities for those you know, among them who are uh, linguists of taking up obviously French or Spanish or might in the future take one of the languages um, to actually combine a bit of uh, the two um, and try perhaps to fill some gaps that it might have in between rehearsals or shows or tours around the world to um, exploit what um, those those skills. Um, I think, you know, the most obvious um, job that one can think about when um, you tell them that you know a foreign language is generally, you know, the typical, um, you know, translator slash interpreter and teacher. So I'm going to start actually with those three roles, um, but trying to give you a bit more of an idea of what else can be done with those within those jobs and um, so obviously you know teaching um apart from myself obviously being a, a teacher um in a school there are other options and your um most flexible ones especially if you um, are thinking of working you know as a dancer or actor or artist in general would be to um alongside that do some private tuition or online uh, tutoring one thing that uh, perhaps our students forget is that um, they could actually use English as the foreign language uh, whilst they work um, abroad. And there's obviously a massive demand um, of people who want to learn English and a lot of the time in English for specific purposes. So, you know, the language of a particular job or field anyway. And for example, in their case, they could you know, perhaps teach English um, to foreign students and that applies to, I don't know, acting or music terms, um, perhaps. Um, and um, so, you know, it doesn't need to be looked at as a full-time uh, job. I think with the um, interpreter, a lot of people find that it's a bit of a more exciting career. Um, my degree was partly in interpreting and I decided against pursuing a career there, mainly due to the stress levels that it can bring in some of the settings because everybody um if you mention the word interpreter thinks of the i don't know european union you know meetings where there's so many kind of representatives from different countries governments and you know you've got to really get it right otherwise you risk causing a diplomatic incident um, but there are obviously many other settings where interpreting goes um on and um you know for example, courts, if we link it to citizenship studies, you know, you, you often end up having um, people in court who might not be able to understand the, um, the language um, 
there. So obviously you've got to have, yes, your lawyer or whoever else is representing you, but also interpreters there. And if you are in trouble with the law while you're abroad, obviously you can also rely on the presence of um, interpreters. Um, one that is quite common, I find, in the UK um, is finding interpreters in hospital, um, you know, uh, because uh, due to the, you know, multi-ethnicity uh, that we experience here in the UK, you know, some, some people who find themselves um, at A&E or for specialist vid visits don't necessarily know the terms to explain the symptoms or, you know, issues to doctors, for example. And um, with the translation, which is pretty much the same job as an interpreter, but in the background, I think what could be, um, be more of interest to our students is the fact that, um, and I think I've touched on this when we talked about films and um, other things, is the um, um, changing of sing, um, sort of song lyrics uh, to you know, musicals or shows in general. Um, we talked about translating um, for film purposes, where then obviously the translator has also to take into account the length, you know, of the person sort of moving the lips. Um, but when I think of very famous songs, you know, even, I don't know, thinking of Mary Poppins and the sugar thing, you know, <laughs> you know, I learned... I learned that song in Italian, you know, I watched that musical in Italian at the time. Um, and of course, the, the, the lyrics translate roughly into what you guys know in English as well. But, it, you know, I think it'd be quite amazing for some of our students to be able to perform, um, you know, using a foreign language. And I know that, um, you know, translating, you know, one musical play a song in, from one language to another will cause some issues but it's also quite um entertaining i suppose and one thing that we forget about actually speaking of translations is that when you read a really good book you just get um well take notes of the of the author you'd never or very rarely kind of go oh who translated this book um and i think that there is a bit of um you know, her feelings within the translation industry because translators don't often get their work acknowledged. And um, so our students being a lot younger and up to date with technology, a lot of them might want to, you know, use their language skills doing blogs or, you know, being influencers and, you know, posting all sorts on Instagram and social media. And obviously, if you want to reach a wider amount of people, then, you know, what a better idea than doing so using you know another language as well you know you can get more followers more people you can interact uh, with um, and um, you know some people may um, have a very specific blog I don't know if you like cooking could be or my Spanish kitchen and you know have a go um, at using your language skills with that but some of these jobs are quite profitable um, as well uh, we've heard of famous youtubers and podcasters as well um, surely um, our students could use English and Spanish or French in their, you know, podcasts or um, YouTube videos, tutorials, and um, whatever it is, uh, really. Um, moving on, uh, I had looked at tour tourist guides. It's probably one of those dying professions as such. You know, we'll go around this audio guide, see Look on Google. We could be watching, and um, well, we could be looking at 
particular monument or visiting a museum, uh, you've got those guides all translated for you. Um, but I do think perhaps our art students at Boa might be interested in um, you know, that aspect more than others because, um, well, you don't often um, in art galleries see what, tour guides, like, um, you know, you can, you've got to be a bit more, um, I don't know, the, the technical terms with art um, are a bit more difficult. We certainly don't talk about those in lessons um, anyway. And I've got one from Mr. Lawton uh, in a second, actually, that ma uh, kind of marries his geography, his love for geography. Um, and it's to do with uh, market research and environmental research. Now, people don't think that this is something for language um, experts, um, but apparently one of the main things that environmental researchers do when they obviously are on the job is actually speaking to the locals uh, to gauge, you know, how developments in an area have, for example, you know, affected the environmental conditions. Um, and people are less reluctant to give you the truth uh, if you speak to them in their native uh, language. So in one way, this is something obviously people are exploring to go towards, you know, geographers um, who also take a language. Perhaps it's something to bear to bear in mind. And a lot of the research that takes place, obviously, as you go into the country, um, you know, will be done in the target language as such. That links directly to bottom-up strategies being implemented because you have to work with the locals to ensure that they want it, that they agree with it, that it works within their cultural practices. So yeah. that makes perfect sense about the language barriers. Okay, one more um, job that I think is worth mentioning is this one called Product Localization Manager. Um, so if you maybe know that McDonald's, for example, um, doesn't have a Big Mac on, on the menu in India, um, they instead have something called the Maraja Mac, which is a beefless version of you know the Big Mac as we know it. Similarly, Israel has the Mac Schwama and Japan has the Mega Teriyaki Mac, for example. Um, and it kind of goes back to what I was saying about the other job with the field researcher, and it's about native speakers or bilingual people being able to gauge what the traditions are in the country where they work um, and using their cultural um, understanding as well to guide um, kind of commercial choices um, that you know, something like McDonald's who operates in many, many countries would have to make. And then if you fancy a change, you can also become a member of the intelligence or join the military. So the options are endless. All right, thank, thank you very much, Mr. DeSalvo. Um, if I ever learn to speak a language to any level, uh, then I know what I can do with it, I suppose. Um, right, I think that brings us to the end of our anniversary special, the 10th episode of the HD lockdown pod. Who would have thought we'd have got this far? Uh, but there we are. I didn't. Well, there's always one. Um, okay, so it's, it leaves me with nothing more to do than say uh, goodbye and farewell. Uh, Mr. Patterson, I'll see you maybe uh, see you soon. Yep, see you later. Mr. DeSalvo, speak soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. And uh, Mr. Lawton. Uh, Cheerio. Bye-bye. Right, guys, we will see you all next week. Isn't that exciting? face-to-face. -face. As Bill and Ted would say, be excellent to each other. Sage advice. <laughs>